Reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and verses 1 through 3. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Father, we thank you that your mercy does endure forever. Uh, we depend upon that mercy every day of our lives, and we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Bless this, your people, Father, as we continue to worship, as we dig into your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are two things that make people want to skip over Second Chronicles, and the first is obviously that there's nine chapters that this book begins with, nothing but boring, ultra-boring uh, genealogies. And in our modern writing classes that we go to, people are taught to really have something gripping at the beginning of the book so that people will be drawn in and read the whole book. And uh, so starting with genealogy seems like an odd way to go in the writing of a book, but we're going to be seeing in a moment that there's a good reason for this, and the reason is not that Ezra is a boring scribe. Uh, as you get into Second Chronicles, you will see some amazingly interesting stories. He is a master storyteller. And so he's not boring, but this is the first reason. In fact, if we have time, I may get into some of the humor that Ezra has. He's got dry humor in this book. But anyway, that's the first reason, genealogy. second reason people stop reading is that they assume that Chronicles is telling exactly the same stories that Samuel and Kings has given. They say, I've already read all those stories. Why do I need to read them again? And I'm going to demonstrate for you that Chronicles is actually much, much different than Samuel and Kings. And I hope by the end of the sermon you'll appreciate why it is important to read Chronicles cover to cover. Now let me start by giving you 12 top things that make Chronicles so different from Kings, even though it does have some of the same stories. Now, first of all, Chronicles begins much earlier than Kings. It goes <laughs> all the way back to Adam, and it continues on into Cyrus giving his decree for people to come back to Israel from Babylon and to build the temple. So it's a longer span of time. In fact, it covers the longest span of time of any Old Testament historical book. Second, where Kings is strictly chronological, Chronicles sometimes is out of order. Generally speaking, it's taking things in order, but it'll sometimes revert back to earlier stories in order to illustrate the topic that it's talking about. Uh, so, for example, though Saul died in 1 Chronicles 10, He's discussed again in chapter 12, verse 19. Nobody's confused by that, and um, they know exactly what he's doing. Likewise, David's battle with the Philistines in chapter 14 is chronologically out of order, but topically, it's very, very appropriate. He's using stories from history to illustrate the points that he's going to be teaching. Third, where Kings gives extensive history of both the northern and the southern kingdoms, Chronicles almost exclusively ignores 
the northern kings. The only time it seems that they mention the northern kings is when the southerners are fighting against them. And um, by the way, this makes the narrative much, much smoother for reading through Chronicles. In uh, the book of Kings, he's having to go back and forth. Northern kingdom, he talks for a while, and then the southern kingdom, and you can get lost, and it's so easy to read through Chronicles. Very, very smooth uh, storyline. Fourth, Chronicles emphasizes the Ark of the Covenant and the Temple far more than Kings does, and therefore emphasizes redemption a whole lot more than Kings. And so uh, Kings emphasizes morals and the judgments that come from God, and Chronicles uh, emphasizes the temple and redemption. Fifth, Kings emphasizes the sins that led to the exile and applies Deuteronomy to those sins. Uh, very, uh, this is kind of the factual evidence that Jeremiah is going to be entering into his covenant lawsuit along with the book of Jeremiah against the nation. In contrast, Chronicles overlooks many of the sins and the lives of its heroes and emphasizes encouragement for the post-exilic people. So in many ways, this is showing uh, grace overcoming sin. Now, they're both perfectly accurate records, but they're being selective in order to emphasize different points. Sixth, while the heart of kings is prophetic judgment, the heart of chronicles is priestly redemption. So the book of Kings... Um, shows why Israel deserved to go off into exile, and uh, Chronicles emphasizes hope for the future. In fact, hope for a return from exile. So it's a prophetic judgment in Kings versus priestly redemption in Chronicles. Likewise, Kings is more negative. Chronicles tends to be more positive and encouraging. Eighth, Kings focuses on the political, while Chronicles focuses on the ecclesiastical. Ninth, Kings focuses on man's failings, while Chronicles focuses on God's faithfulness in dealing with man's failings. Tenth, Kings is numbered with the former prophets in, in the Hebrew canon, and Chronicles is the very, very last book of the Hebrew canon. I decided not to do it in the Hebrew order. I thought it would just be too confusing. So we're taking that today. Eleventh, Kings emphasizes the human dimension of history, while Chronicles emphasizes the divine weaving of this human history. So, for example, even as simple a thing as the throne of David, both books mention uh, David's throne, but only Chronicles mention that David's throne is also called Jehovah's throne. That's uh, 2 Chronicles 9, verse 8. And then 12, some people liken Samuel and Kings to the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and liken Chronicles to John. Now, I, that's a little bit more fuzzy of a, of a comparison, but in terms of the feel of the books, I think there is something to that. Now, stories help us, I think, to sometimes get these more abstract concepts uh, to gel in our heads. So I'm going to tell you a story about King Manasseh. If you would turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Uh, and before I start reading this, I'm going to give you a little bit of background information on him. Manasseh was an unbelievably wicked king. He was far worse than Ahab. Now, we, you know, kings spent a great deal of time showing how wicked Ahab was. Chronicles presents Manasseh as far, far worse. Okay? A lot of similarities between the two books. Uh, 2 Kings 21 is where uh, Kings tells the story. But there are significant differences that 
that illustrate what Chronicles is trying to do. Chronicles was being written to a generation of people, some of whom, a tiny, tiny minority, had come back to the land of Israel, and yet there were many in, in Babylon who were wondering why. Uh, why would we come back? God is done uh, with Israel. And the people who are already back in the land were con kind of concerned, and they're saying, okay, there is no Davidic king. Has the Davidic covenant failed? And he's going to be showing, no, there is a messianic fulfillment off in the future, and God's Davidic covenant continues to have a purpose for you. And so Chronicles is written uh, by showing God has compassion on his people. He's going to uh, be willing to bring redemption. He's willing to forgive any sin that people might commit if they repent of their sins and turn from them. Now the last chapter of Chronicles is going to be showing that there is an unpardonable sin, where there is no more redemption uh, for those people, but it's not the greatness of the sin that makes it unpardonable, uh, it's the fact that the person can no longer repent. So if there's confession, if there's repentance, there will be uh, forgiveness. That's uh, illustrated in this story. So let's begin reading. 2 Chronicles 33, beginning at verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses." So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. That's saying something. He was worse than the pagan Canaanites that they had cast out of the land before. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Now so far the stories in Kings and Chronicles are pretty much identical. But at this point, Kings adds a bunch more negative material about Manasseh to show why Israel was cast into exile. And now Chronicles adds some information that's completely missing from the book of Kings. Kings does not, now Kings does mention that Manasseh died in Jerusalem, but it leaves out that he'd been cast into exile in Babylon, that he was in prison there, that the Lord converted him and brought him back to, uh, back to Jerusalem. Now, both accounts are 100% accurate, but again, each one is being selective to illustrate a central purpose. So let's begin reading again uh, where we left off at verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. 
Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord as God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel. And he raised it up, and raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. There, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel, and his prayer, and how God received his entreaty, and all his sin and trespasses, and the sites where he built high places, and set up wooden images, and carved images, before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosei. So Manasseh rested with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. So you can see, this is just a magnificent story of redemption. God sovereignly saves the absolute worst king of Israel, and his last days are wonderful. He is transformed. This is a testimony to grace. And as you read through Chronicles, you see many other examples of God's redemptive purposes here. Uh, David's worst sin is completely passed over. doesn't mention, you know, sin with Bathsheba and uh, his murder of his... Uh, his friend uh, Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah is mentioned in Chronicles, but it's only mentioned that he's one of the heroes of the faith. It doesn't even mention that he died. So um, all of that is, uh, is uh, left out because his focus is going to be different. Now, since I've already mentioned two stories of redemption, I'm going to pick up in your outline at the Christ of Chronicles, and Christ is richly displayed in this book. He is displayed in the Davidic covenant of 1 Chronicles 17, especially in verses 11 through 14, where the eternal nature of that Davidic covenant is uh, outlined. So there is going to be an eternal seed of David who will rule eternally on the throne of David. And the later prophets clearly apply the Davidic covenant to Jesus, to the, to the future Messiah. So he's the only way that there could be an eternal seed of David reigning eternally upon the throne. Uh, Christ is also hinted at in the genealogy of 1 Chronicles 4 in that the monarchy, temple, Messiah are going to be located in the same tribe that Jesus came from, and I'm not going to give an exposition of that. I want to focus on the next two points. Perhaps the most pervasive and obvious image of Jesus is the temple that David planned for and that Solomon built. Uh, you can see how central this message is to the book of Chronicles by how many chapters are spent talking about the temple. I mean, it is ginormous. It's way more than all of Samuel and Kings combined. So there's 17 chapters, all of chapters 13 through 29, that uh, talk about David's preparations for the temple, 
And then we have all of Second Chronicles 1 through 9 being devoted to Solomon's building and consecration of the temple. Now you add those up and you divide it by the total number of chapters, you come to 40% of all of the material in Chronicles deals directly with the temple. Uh, that, that is huge. When you consider that Chronicles covers 466 years of history, if you exclude the genealogies, it's a lot more if you include those, but just the main material, 466 years, and yet here you have 40% of this history dealing with a tiny period of history uh, of the building and the consecration of the temple. It's a huge central subject of this book. But the more you dig, the more you realize it's actually way more than 40% that's devoted to the temple because Second uh, Chronicles 10 through uh, chapter 36, uh, 36 uh, it mentions that the reason the, the northern kings aren't even included in this history is because they rejected the temple. And then you look at the southern kings, the ones that he focuses the most material upon are the kings who are restoring temple worship. Uh, the kings Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Now I didn't take the time, uh, didn't have the time to calculate how much extra that adds to the number I guarantee you it's way more than 50% of the book is devoted uh, to the temple. So why all of that focus? Well, because this is a book with a redemptive message. And uh, we saw uh, last week that kings, the very heart of that chiasm, the heart of that book is prophetic judgment, whereas the heart of this book is priestly. So kings is prophetic through and through. This is priestly through and through. It is a redemptive book designed to teach God's people that if they will put their faith in the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's illustrated by so many things in this book, we'll see that, and they repent of their sins, they trust him alone for their salvation, then God will be for them and he will be with them. So his temple comes down and is established on the earth uh, so that God's presence will be with them and he's going to set them apart to be a a nation of priests. Now what do priests do? They reconcile people to Christ. So here is a nation, an entire nation, that's supposed to be priests reconciling the world to God. Now they failed miserably on that task, unlike the coming Messiah, but that was their goal. So when you add uh, that theme of Israel being a priest of the nations, the redemptive aspects of this book increase even more. Now, in terms of the symbology of the temple, I'm not going to get into it because it's identical to what we saw in the tabernacle of Moses. Every piece of furniture pointed to a different facet of Christ's ministry, work, his person. Um, all of them were made of wood, representing his humanity. They're covered with gold, representing his deity. The entire temple was cloaked in enormous amount of gold, and so it was a golden palace for the king of the universe. It was a spectacular wonder of the world that pointed to the presence of God dwelling with his people because of the merits of Jesus Christ that the temple and sacrifices pointed to. Now, the next one is neglected in most books, but I think it's really important. The booth of David is an astounding picture of Christ dwelling with his people in New Covenant times. Now, this is in chapters 15 through 16, 1 Chronicles 6, 15 through 16, it's referenced in other places as well. But Acts 
15 uses the booth of David as a type of Jesus uniting both Jew and Gentile together in one body. And scholars point to a number of unusual things about this booth of David. Uh, I'm surprised that I'm recommending yet another Peter Lightheart book. <laughs> but his book on the booth of David is nothing short of astounding. I don't agree with everything in that book, but he has pulled together so much rich information. Let me start by listing some of the key differences between the tabernacle of Moses and the booth of David. And as I go through this, I think you're going to see, oh, wow, this really is significant. First of all, the booth of David was inside of Jerusalem, in 1 Kings 15 through 16, whereas the tabernacle of Moses was seven miles northwest in Gibeon. It was outside of, the, uh, of, of Jerusalem. And there's a brief mention to the tabernacle of Moses in 1 Chronicles 16, 39 through 43, but the two are in different locations. Second, the booth of David was not a substitute for the tabernacle of Moses. Uh, both were needed, both were used, both had different functions. So don't confuse the two. Sometimes people just think, oh well, tabernacle, a booth of David is just a mosaic tabernacle. No, it's not. They are quite different. Third, even different Hebrew terms are used. Now in some Bibles, um, the booth of David is sometimes translated as the tabernacle of David. But because different Hebrew terms are used, most modern translations call it the booth of David, and we do need to keep them distinguished. Fourth, the architecture was quite different. Now with the tabernacle of Moses, you already know there's the outer court, there's a holy place, there's a holy of holies, there's three rooms. So three rooms for the tabernacle, only one room in the booth of David. And again, I'm trying to have in your minds that they're quite distinct items. Fifth, when the Ark of the Covenant used to be in the tabernacle of Moses, it was not visible to God's people. It was not visible. The only person who could ever see the Ark of the Covenant was the high priest. He could only see it one day out of the year. That was on the Day of Atonement. And even he had to wear a rope around his leg. Talk about being nervous when you're in your job description. Yeah, you got to wear a rope in case you die. <laughs> might get struck by the Lord, you know. So only the high priest could see it. Whereas in the booth of David, by God's authorization, God moved the Ark of the Covenant into the booth of David, and it was visible to everybody who worshipped there. They were face to face with that Ark. This is astounding, absolutely astounding. David frequently went before that ark to commune with God, to get guidance from God. When it was in the Mosaic tabernacle, there was no way that David would have been able to do that. Uh, not even the high priest could do that. Sixth, sacrifices were offered at the tabernacle of Moses in Gibeon. Whereas fellowship with God is emphasized in the booth of David. Since priests did not function, they did not function in the booth of David, there were not any sacrifices in the booth of David. The only exception was when the ark was first being moved there by the priests, and even that was symbolically appropriate of the new covenant. They offered sacrifices once, and after that, they have fellowship in the booth of David without sacrifices. So David approached the ark, to commune with God without sacrifice. Now to get right with God, he had to go to Gibeon. He had to sacrifice there. 
But then when he came to the, the, the booth of David, he walked right in and he was able to commune with God face to face. So the sacrifices at the beginning of chapter 15 symbolized the finished work of Jesus, which was done once and for all as the means for ushering all into communion without sacrifice. Seventh, this meant that the booth of David functioned similarly to a synagogue with three exceptions, and I'll give those three exceptions in a bit. Tabernacle of Moses was not a synagogue. But the booth of David was a kind of synagogue with the exception that the Ark of the Covenant was in the midst of it. God's throne was right there in the midst. So again, parallels to our new covenant worship. And then eighth, and this is one of the most astounding differences between the tabernacle of Moses and the booth of David. The booth of David had ministers who were both Jewish and Gentile. The Jewish priests, they continued to minister at the tabernacle of Moses But they had no place in the booth of David, other than that initial presentation of the ark to the booth of David. They had no place there. Instead, you had the synagogue Levites, together with a majority of Gentile ministers, Obed-Edom and all of his brethren, who ministered before the ark. Now, some commentators are absolutely mystified by this. How on earth could Gentiles serve in any way before the Ark of the Covenant. And so some of these commentators will say, well, they must have been adopted into the tribe of Levi. That may be. Isaiah 66 speaks of us ministers as being Levites. There is an equivalent there. But the point is, they were Gentiles. All acknowledge that this is a strange and astounding new thing that God has authorized for a brief period of history. And it was authorized to foreshadow the astounding things that the final David, Jesus, would accomplish in the New Covenant. Now this means that the booth of David showcases what our New Covenant worship should look like far more than the temple does. Okay, The booth of David contained temple worship stripped of all of the ceremonial law. Okay, Just like the synagogues had worship of God, temple worship, stripped of all of the ceremonial law. New covenant worship is exactly the same thing. Uh, And so there are no priests, no sacrifices, no incense, no priestly garments, no temple furniture, no holy pots and pans, no altars. None of that temple stuff is in the booth of David. It was people face to face with God. And so the booth of David was equivalent to the old Uh, Testament synagogue, but with three additional things that are distinctively New Covenant. The presence of Gentile ministers, the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, and actually this one's probably not distinctive, but far more musical instruments than any of the other synagogues had. The uh, synagogues had music, instrumental music, but there were far more instrumental music in the uh, booth of David uh, because of its size. And David would not have been able to get away with any of that if God had not directly, explicitly authorized it. Uh, 2 Chronicles 29, 25 through 27 says, All of this was by the commandment of the Lord through his prophets and references that command of the Lord for even the musical instruments. Likewise, both Amos 9, very important passage, and Acts 15 use the booth of David as a type of new covenant worship where Jew and Gentile together are able to worship God. Never did the prophets of the Old Testament or the New Testament ever refer to the church as Mount Moriah. 
where the temple is. It's referred to as Mount Zion, where the booth of David was. Um, so over the past 35 years of preaching, I have sometimes confused those two mounts, but they are different. I think it's important <laughs> to keep them different. The psalm in 1 Chronicles 16 is particularly powerful in describing Jew and Gentile worshiping side by side in New Testament times. And so in commenting on the Jew-Gentile issue in Acts 15, James says that the New Testament church is a rebuilding of the booth of David. So that is the essence of the New Testament church. Uh, it is not the temple. It's not even you know, per se a synagogue. It's a kind of synagogue, but it is a rebuilding of the booth of David. So here's what James says. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Now keep in mind that reference to Gentiles, because that's going to be a big part of Chronicles as well. So the booth of David is an amazing type of new covenant worship being caught up to the heavenly ark of the covenant by means of our union with Jesus. So just as David and actually other people were able to boldly come before the mercy seat, which was above the ark of the covenant, that's the throne of grace, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. I, I just love this image. I'll be very, very quick on the other types of Jesus. David himself is a type of Christ. We won't look at him because we've dealt with him and Samuel. Other than to say that David as a man of war symbolizes our messy period of church history where we're still conquering the nations, right? In contrast, Solomon was a man of peace, and as such, Solomon represents the period of Christ's kingdom in the future where the entire world's going to be converted and there's going to be peace and prosperity. Uh, I won't even cover... Book of the Law, the Ark, the Passover, Burnt Offering, the Offices of Prophet, Priest, and King, because I think we've adequately dealt with those uh, before. But I think you can see this is a book of redemption that beautifully foreshadows the redemption that we have in Jesus. Who is the author? I think it's a slam dunk that it was Ezra. I was going to give you a bunch of reasons for believing that. I'm going to put that on the web and leave that over. But if Ezra is the author, as I 100% believe that he was, then the emphasis of this book that we've already been looking at makes perfect sense because Ezra has an audience that he is writing to that needs some grounding in these principles. He wants to tell them, look, no matter how much hard work it is, we need the temple uh, reestablished. He wants to convince more Jews, because only a tiny minority had come, to come from Babylon back to Israel. He wants to tell the people who are already in Israel, you've got to be more faithful to the covenant. Uh, he wants to give hope that God will be their God and giving hope of a coming Messiah. And since rulers of Israel were not Davidic kings, they might have thought God was being unfaithful to his covenant. And he gives this book to say, no, no, there is coming a future Messiah who will be of the seed of David and will rule forever. Now there's debate on what is the key chapter. Some think it's 1 Chronicles 17, which is the Davidic covenant. And it's certainly an important one. But since the temple chapters are central to the redemptive message, I believe 2 Chronicles 7 is the key chapter. That's the chapter where uh, we read that the fire came down from heaven. And, and well, let me just go ahead and read it again. 
When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. God has accepted this temple. He's moving in. This is going to be something that is God authorized. That I read may indeed be the key verses for the book as well, but uh, I've picked uh, verse 14 of the same chapter. I think it fits the central message of redemption. Second Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. So it's a redemptive verse in a redemptive chapter, in a redemptive history, preaching to a people who need to hear the message of the total sufficiency of God's redemption for his returning people. Key word is debatable. If you look in various study Bibles, uh, they'll give other key words. Um, for example, many people say priest. That's the key word. It occurs 93 times. That's a lot of times for it to occur. My point is, you don't have any priests if you don't have a temple. They're connected to the temple. Other people say Ark of the Covenant, because that occurs for 44 times. Um, but if you look up the word temple and house of the Lord, it occurs 126 times. And because the temple occupies more than 50% of this book, and since all of the other terms are related to the temple, I believe temple is the key word for understanding this book. Now, in what, light of what uh, we've studied so far, I want to give you a, a very brief, try to be quick, overview of the book. First section of the book is chapters 1 through 9, and it's composed of nothing but genealogies. And where do the genealogies start? First word is Adam. That's not accidental. Uh, this gives it a universal flavor, even a Gentile flavor. This is a book that is designed for all mankind. Now, I'll admit it's very easy to skip over those genealogies, especially if you don't know the stories behind them. Uh, it just may be meaningless, meaningless to you. But if you're a Hebrew who is very familiar with the Old Testament, every name that is being read is freighted with all kinds of, of history in it. It's like walking down memory lane, only in this case it's the memories of the whole Old Testament. It's obvious why the line of David is traced in this book, because he's the one to whom the messianic promises are going to be made. By the way, exactly the same genealogy is recorded in Luke for the genealogy of Jesus. That's not by accident. A genealogy of the priest, that makes sense because priestly redemption is going to be the focus of this book. I mean, Ezra is very occupied with getting that temple built, very occupied with are these priests uh, qualified to be priests in this temple. So all of those genealogies make sense in the context of Ezra, but what many people miss is the inclusion of Gentiles in these chapters of genealogies, and that is not by accident. Now, people can explain away the Adam and Noah. Well, obviously, any genealogy, whether it's Gentile or Jew, is going to have to start with Adam and Noah, right? So they can dismiss that, but if you look at chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, it lists the genealogy of Japheth. Why? Verses 8 through 16 lists the genealogies of Ham. And the genealogy of Shem includes far more than Israel's ancestors. 
These genealogies include all of the Gentile nations that are listed in Genesis. Now this inclusion of the Gentiles is very deliberate because this book is going to be showing an astounding number of Gentiles who get converted to the true faith and come into Israel, such as David's Philistine guards, the Pelophites and the Cherethites, as well as other Gentiles who have joined his ranks. On many levels, he is such an appropriate image or figure or type of the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to be saving the entire world, right? So the most puzzling place that we've already looked at of Gentiles is they were included right in the booth of David before the Ark of the Covenant. So it's setting the context for why the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus, will be a universal king, saving people from every nation, tribe, and language. And even in these genealogies, you can already see the heartbeat that God has for missions. Uh, <laughs> you might not think of genealogies as a missions document, but it really is. So rather than compromising with the Gentiles, Ezra wanted this people evangelizing the Gentiles, bringing them into the covenant. Let me explain two different methods that God has established for missions. In the New Testament, we've got centrifugal missions. You know, when you spin something around, the force drives it outward. Well, we are being driven to the far reaches of the globe to reach this world for Christ. Chronicles has the opposite kind of missions. It's centripetal missions. It's like a magnet drawing into the center. And so God had established Israel to be a priest of the nations, and he wanted them to be so showcasing God's grace, his law, the blueprints that give success, that everyone becomes jealous of the gospel, and they want to come into Israel. They want to be a part of what's going on. In fact, even the way the genealogies are constructed highlights this redemptive feature. All nine chapters are arranged in a perfect chiasm that you can see in your outlines. The A sections start with the genealogies of the ancient non-tribal past. They are paralleled with the present non-tribal situation. B, the royal tribe of Judah's genealogy leads to David in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 23, and it's paralleled with the royal tribe of Benjamin's genealogy leading up to King Saul in chapter 8. Incidental tribes are listed in chapters 4 through 5 and again in chapter 7, but they're interrupted with the heart of the genealogies being, surprise, surprise, the tribe of Levi, right? This is the priestly tribe. So the heart of even these genealogies is redemptive. This makes the Hebrew reader instantly aware that the priesthood and temple will be the central theme for this book. Now let's move to the next major section of the book. In chapters 10 through 29, going to finish off very quickly uh, 1 Chronicles. We have a lot of the familiar stories that were told in Samuel about David. Uh, what is deliberately left out are any stories that portray David as weak or his character as flawed. So his persecution by Saul, left out. Uh, his sin with Bathsheba, left out. His murder of Uriah, uh, left out. Uh, Uriah is mentioned, but his death um, uh, is not mentioned. Now, I don't think this is a sanitized version of David because he, he, he implies you've already read Samuel and Kings. He knows you know that history. So it's not sanitized. He's just being very selective to portray David as an image more perfectly of the coming Messiah than kings would show. Likewise, Chronicles gives some new material about David. 
we would not otherwise have. For example, David is portrayed as a second Moses who receives, that's chapter 28, receives from heaven all of the blueprints for the temple, for the priesthood, for the musicians, for everything, just as Moses had received from God the blueprints for the tabernacle and for its worship. And we got a boatload of material in chapters 22 through 28 on those blueprints. So David is deliberately painted as an image that will later be appealed to by prophets as a type of Jesus, the King of Kings. So that brings us to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is where the book of Kings starts. And just like our comparison of Chronicles with Samuel, uh, you compare 2 Chronicles with Kings, we also have a bunch of material that's deleted and some that you won't find in Kings. And again, for the same purpose, I'll just give you one example. Since Solomon will serve as a type of Jesus, the author tends to focus where possible on those aspects of Solomon's character that most clearly portray him as an image of Jesus. So we see no mention of his multiple wives and his concubines because, in my opinion, that's an utterly inappropriate image uh, for Jesus and his bride. In fact, the only mention of his wife, singular, in this book makes it clear that Moses, uh, he, uh, Solomon should not have been married to her. We know from Kings he must have had a wife earlier, but apparently she died because this indicates he only had one wife, daughter of Pharaoh, but he shouldn't have had her. Second Chronicles 8 verse 11 mentions Solomon removed the daughter of Pharaoh out of Jerusalem, and the text explains why. Solomon realized by divine inspiration this was not appropriate, and so he says this, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So he's dwelling in the holy place, but she can't. I mean, what's the point? She's not holy, right? She spoils the imagery of Jerusalem. Solomon is saying she's utterly inappropriate for the symbolism that God is setting up. But otherwise, there's no mention of multiple wives, of God's anger against him, of Solomon's adversaries, lack of peace toward the end of his reign. Next section is chapters 10 through 36. History of the Northern Kings, as I mentioned, ignored. Southern Kings, we have some material removed, new material added that you won't get in Kings. And again, for the same purposes, uh, you also have new stories of how God punished Kings that were unfaithful. And this unfaithfulness is not overlooked because, hey, he's got to explain why there's an exile, right? So it's not all sin that's overlooked. But those stories are recorded in a way to motivate later generations to avoid their sins and to remain faithful to God. In fact, as I've mentioned, you've got strong redemptive features written all through it, like the story of Manasseh that we read earlier. So I can see Ezra's hand in these stories pastorally pointing the post-exilic people uh, to redemption. The last two verses form an epilogue that shows that God is not finished with his people. He has a plan and he has a hope for them. And he explicitly says that this return from the exile after 70 years had been predicted by Jeremiah the prophet. So he's saying, look, your exile was not an accident of history. God had already predicted it down to the year and your return from exile is not an accident of history because God is the one who moved Cyrus's heart. He's the one who, who, who is returning you. But once again, we have the mention of a temple. It's a temple that will be rebuilt. So reading the last two verses, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So that's the book in a nutshell. And I want to end by giving eight practical applications. I don't think we can leave Chronicles without giving at least some practical applications. Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, ends the story of wicked king Rehoboam by saying this, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Jesus said every sin comes from the heart of man, and if we are not working on our hearts, Holiness is not automatically going to happen. If we we don't prepare our hearts, we could end up like Rehoboam. Now, what does it mean to prepare your heart? Well, first it means you don't just drift through life. You make preparations, you plan every day with God as your focus. Second, it involves evaluation of every day with confession, or you've blown it, recommitment to the Lord, asking God to help you to honor Him in your plans. And then third, it involves systematically crucifying any desires that are going to hinder your walk with God. You start with the heart. If you do not have strategies to prepare your heart to seek God, you're going to drift. And drifting is never a safe thing. You start going downstream, and it's going to end up in disaster. So God requires heart preparation, daily seeking of his face. Second lesson is from the life of good king Abijah. 2 Chronicles 13, 18 summarizes the lesson we can get uh, from the miraculous win that Abijah had against Jeroboam, and it it was miraculous. It says, Then the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. Now, when you read the story of that battle, you realize they could not take credit for this because they were surrounded Uh, They were fighting against overwhelming odds, and it would have been very easy to give in to fear and a sense of hopelessness, but fear kills faith, and rather than fleeing, which would have been the normal impulse, they cried out to God, trusted Him to deliver, and they dove into the battle with the confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us? And God loves to deliver those who rely upon Him and not on their own resources. I think it's too easy to trust in our own arm of strength rather than trusting in the Lord. Third lesson comes from the life of Asa in chapter 16. Asa started off wonderfully well, and God gave him an astounding victory over the Ethiopians. Now, chapter 14 records that battle and says that that Zerah, the Ethiopian, had one million soldiers plus 300 chariots, and it, it it was like completely upside down in terms of the odds. Asa cried out to the Lord, telling the Lord, Lord, numbers are no big deal for you, basically is what he said. And God honored his faith with an astounding victory. So he had a good start. He was a man of faith. But over time, Asa became spiritually lazy. He failed to guard his heart, and he was no longer driven by a radical loyalty to God. And I've seen this happen so many times in people's lives. Sometimes it ends in divorce or excommunication, but somebody always seems to get hurt. Look at 2 Chronicles 16. 7 through 10. And and to me, it's just surprising to see good King Asa getting this bad. 2 Kings 16, beginning at verse 7. 
And at that time, Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Now, previously, he had served the people because he loved the Lord. But when that love grew cold and his pride began to grow, he ended up wounding others rather than serving others. And I have seen the same thing happen with gifted men and women of God. They have been used powerfully by God in the past, but pride gains a foothold and they start attacking their friends. They start alienating people simply because those people love them and love them enough to bring some kind of a correction into their lives. This story is a solemn warning of what can happen to any of us. Now, how do we avoid it? Well, we avoid it by being open to correction and guarding our hearts against pride, recommitting ourselves every day to be sold out to Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you are not open to correction now, you could easily become like Asa. Fourth lesson comes from the life of King Joash, who slipped away from God because he hung out with the wrong crowd in chapter 24. Now earlier, under the influence of Jehoiada, he, he was astounding. He was just a marvelous king. But in verses 17 and following, he got in with the wrong crowd and he ended up horrible. With Solomon, it was his unbelieving wives that led him into sin. Uh, with Joash, it was friends who influenced him into sin. So don't ever underestimate the influence that friends can have upon you for either good or for evil. Choose your friends and your advisors wisely. I mean, even friends within this church can influence you for good or for evil. Always evaluate your friendship by the word of God. Fifth lesson is from the life of Amaziah in 2 Chronicles 25, 5 through 13. Verse 2 summarizes his life with the words, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. And you can see these divided loyalties throughout his life. I'm just going to give you one story, and it's actually a story where he did the right thing. Um, this is in 2 Chronicles 25, 5 through 13, previously he had foolishly hired mercenaries who weren't believers, and a prophet had come to him warning him, said, that is not a good thing. God is not pleased with that. You are going to lose if you use those mercenaries. And in verse 9, Amaziah wants to obey God, but you can see he's conflicted. He, he's torn back and forth. He's worried about the hundred talents of silver that he's already paid to those mercenaries. And a hundred talents of silver is three and a quarter tons of silver. So we're talking about a lot of money that's going to be wasted if he fires these mercenaries. Well, here's what the prophet says to him. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. So he recognized his foolish decision. He took a massive economic loss and he fired the mercenaries. The mercenaries were angry. They went on a rampage through Israel, looting as they went. And so initially it seemed like, wow, this is not a good decision, obeying this a prophet, 
but actually just demonstrated their, their character. It was a good decision. If you cannot trust people when you fire them, it's probably a good thing you didn't trust them when you hired them, right? But um, um, God did pay Amaziah back in verses 11 through 13. Now here's the point of this lesson. Never let finances determine your obedience. And believe it or not, it is the potential loss of finances that make people engage in a whole host of compromises. It is finances that often dictate Sabbath breaking. Uh, let the finances go. It is often the potential loss of tithers that make pastors grow soft in their preaching, but they need to just be faithful to God, cut their budget. Better to have zero salary than to be unfaithful uh, to God. It is often lack of finances that make people disobey the commands for hospitality. You know, I just can't afford to do that. Or that make people say, you know, I don't know that I can afford to educate my children at home. Uh, they need to be missionaries anyway. And there's many other ways in which we compromise. It is greed that makes many Christians make foolish financial decisions with their purchases or with their investments. So if you've already engaged in poor stewardship, do like Amaziah. Confess it to God, repent, take whatever losses you have to take, and start off on a fresh footing with God. He has promised to supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Or as this prophet said, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Our next lesson is from the life of the fairly good king, <coughs> Uzziah, in 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 21. Now he did some really amazingly good things in earlier verses, but pride got the better of them. And actually, his pride came at the height of his success. That's where it usually comes with us, doesn't it? So I'm going to read these verses, and as I read them, let's make it our prayer, Lord, help me to hate my pride, and instantly put it off. Second Chronicles 26, beginning at verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous, so they thrust him out of that place. And he, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now, I regularly go through different exercises to try to identify any pride that is in my heart and to recognize it, to crucify it. Pride is our mortal enemy, and we must war against it, or God will war against us. That's what James says. He opposes the proud, and that's a scary thing. Next lesson is from the life of Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33. Now, I've already read that to you, so I'll just be brief. So here is the worst of the worst of the kings. And yet God humbled him, uh, the Assyrian emperor, took all of his clothes off, that's humbling, put a fish hook through his jaw, 
led him away, incredibly humbling treatment, painful treatment. He's put into prison. In prison, he humbles himself before the Lord. God soundly converts him, and uh, he ends up uh, actually being restored to the throne. Now, the point of this story is that no person is too tough for God's grace. I think it's an encouraging lesson. Don't give up praying for your unsaved relatives, for maybe hardened neighbors or, or friends. Only God knows when a person has gone too far to be saved. And just because a person's in the gutter does not mean they can't be saved. Uh, God says that his grace is able to save to the uttermost. And I love the way one um, uh, 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 minister who ministers to um, drunks put it, he can save to the guttermost. And sometimes he will put people into the gutter in order to save them. In other words, pain can be redemptive. And so if God has been putting pain into your life, consider whether God is seeking to draw you closer to the cross of Christ. But the last lesson is to warn us not to put off the day of repentance because it is possible to cross a line beyond which you can no longer repent and therefore you can no longer be restored. Once we cross that line, there is no remedy, there is no salvation. And again, we don't know where God has put that line. It's not for us to know that, it's for us to stay as far from the line as we can. But this is Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 16. It says this about Judah. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. And that's the phrase I want to comment on. Till there was no remedy. There is a point at which God says enough is enough, and he abandons you. There is a point at which God says to a nation, says to a church, says to an individual, look, I'm done with you. I'm no longer going to offer you a remedy. In fact, in 1 John, he says, there can be a brother, which I take to be a saved person, within the church who has crossed over that line, and God devotes him to death, and he says, don't even bother praying for that person. It is a hopeless cause. I'm taking him out. I don't think it's eternal death. I think it's physical death. But nevertheless, God says, enough is enough. Now, it's a little bit of a bummer. I have to end on a, a sad note like that. But I think it is staying true to the text. But I think even that sad note is a redemptive message that makes us fear getting close to the line and drives us, at least if we're the elect, it drives us back to the cross of Christ. But Chronicles as a whole emphasizes the amazing compassion and redemption that flows from God's throne. It's primarily a book about redemption. Last chapter, yes, it says that if you spurn his grace, it can be too late. Nevertheless, the last two verses remind us that God's covenant with his elect endures to eternity. So let's, let's pray and let's thank God uh, that his mercies are new every morning. Father, we do thank you for your mercies. We do thank you for your grace that is illustrated so richly in this book. We're thankful that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And I pray that we would not despise your grace we would not presume upon it but we would cling to the cross of jesus christ help us all to learn to fear you and to love you and to pursue after you with all of our heart soul strength and mind in jesus name we pray amen